The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to start in Leviticus chapter 16, but we're going to spend the bulk of our time in Hebrews chapter 4. And in Hebrews 4, we read these words beginning in verse 14, Hebrews 4:14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of looking at your word. And as we look at it this morning and we see the role of our Savior as our great high priest, as we look at the true hero, we just pray that you would uh, teach us how we should respond to him who sits in that position. His name. Amen. Rough days, tough times. You ever have one of those? Just a day, you're thinking, it's got to get better than this, or a rough time, or a rough patch that you're going through. Uh, We've all experienced those on occasion, and for some, they kind of run together in packs. There was a lady who had a rough day. She was a traveler. She was between flights at an airport. Uh, She was hungry, so she stopped at a little kiosk and bought a pack of peanut butter crackers. She took her seat, and uh, she uh, picked up her newspaper and began to read. And she heard a wrestling, and she looked down on the uh, little stand between she and a very well-dressed businessman, and she noticed that he took a peanut butter cracker out of the package. She didn't know what to do, so she reached down and picked up a peanut butter cracker out of the package and began to eat it, and that scenario continued. And finally, when they came to the very last cracker, the man broke it in half and slid half of it over to her. She was flabbergasted. She was angry. She didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do, and she just sat there fuming. And the man got up and left when his flight was called, and she just sat there. Then her flight was called. She opened her handbag to get her ticket out, and there was her pack of peanut butter crackers. That's a bad day, isn't it? I mean, that's a rough time if you ever had one, and uh, that's what she experienced, and uh, still embarrassed about the occasion, I'm sure. Hey, some of us are gone through difficult times. The author of Hebrews is saying to the folks that he's writing to, you go through difficult days, you go through a rough patch, you go through difficult weeks maybe or months or whatever it might be. Maybe your faith is being tested. Maybe you're being tempted to sin. Maybe you're struggling. You have a great high priest you can turn to. For some of you, you can relate to that. Some of you are experiencing rough days, tough times right now. You're struggling in a marriage you want out, but you know it's not the biblical thing to do. For some of you right now, you have a son or a daughter who's making poor choices. They're the prodigal, and you don't know what to do. For some of you, you are that prodigal. You're causing chaos within your family, chaos within your home, and you're struggling. Maybe you're a college student coming back, facing temptations to do things and go places you shouldn't go and do things you shouldn't do. Or maybe you're the person who's addicted to porn or to pills or to alcohol or to Coors Light or whatever it might be. Maybe you're as dry spiritually as the ground is outside this building right now. And you're struggling. You've been through a rough patch. What the author of Hebrews is going to tell us is that we have our hero, the Savior, our great high priest to turn to through these times. The Hebrews were struggling. They were facing uh, persecution. They were facing going back to their old ways. And he says, you have one you can turn to in the midst of this. 
You have one you can trust in in the midst of this. You have a great high priest who will not only provide you encouragement, but provide you support and even way more than that if you turn to and trust in him in the midst of that. So we're going to look at Christ's role as our great high priest. We're going to see our Savior as he serves in that role. To begin with, we have to look at the role of the high priest in in Israel. I mean, what did the high priest do? Where did he come from? And to understand that, when we understand that, then we can understand what it means that Christ is our high priest. What was the role of the biblical role of the high priest in the Old Testament? What did they do? Where did they come from? Was it just an election and you went to the ballot and filled it out and said, I want him? Was it a popularity contest? How did it take place? How did you become the high priest in ancient Israel? It's quite interesting as you read the scriptures, we know that the priestly line came from the tribe of, where did the priestly line come from? Anybody remember? Tribe of Levi. So to be a priest, you had to be of the tribe of Levi. Not all Levites were priests, but all priests were Levites. And so we know, here is the genealogy, we know that you had to come from the tribe of Levi. That began, backs all the way up to Aaron, who was the brother of Moses of the tribe of Levi. And so if you were going to be a priest, you had to be from that tribe. And so the high priest was actually selected from among all the other priests. Here's a picture of a high priest. They didn't actually have cameras back then. That's an artist's rendition. The high priest had to be without physical defect. It's quite interesting. In Leviticus chapter 21, there's a whole list of things that you couldn't do or couldn't be. It says, no man of your offspring throughout the generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the bread of God. They're referring to the high priest. And listen to this list. You cannot be blind, you cannot be lame, you cannot have a disfigured face, a deformed limb, you cannot have a broken foot, a broken hand, you cannot be a hunchback or a dwarf, you cannot have a defect in your eye. I'm eliminated at that point in time. You, you can't have eczema, you can't have scabs, and you can't have crushed testicles. And so you look at that list and you're thinking, wow. I mean, that's quite, if you put a list together, I don't know how you get there, but that's the list right there. Leviticus chapter 21, verses 16 through, through 20, actually. So you had to be without physical defect. Had to be without physical defect. You had to be of the Levitical tribe. You had to be of the line of Aaron. The high priest, so it's a hereditary position. So here's the problem with any hereditary position. Over time, over time, you didn't have spiritual men who took over that position. And so it became corrupted, it became a place of power, and it became a place where spirituality was lacking. We see that by the time of Christ when Caiaphas is the high priest who rejects and turns on our Savior. It was a position of leadership. And so he was over the other priests throughout the temple of the nation of Israel. And though the high priest could function and do other things that other priests did or could do the normal, ordinary affairs of any priest, there were a couple of ministries that only the high priest could do. One is he was involved with the Urim and Thummim, and we're not exactly sure what all that means. There were a couple of things in the breastplate that were used by the high priest only to determine the will of God. And secondly, the high priest was the only one that had the privilege to enter into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He was the only one of the entire priestly tribe that could do that. The most important duty that the high priest had was to do that very thing. We see it in Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1, when he's a high priest and is selected to enter at that time. Only he, only one priest, was allowed to enter as a high priest, the Holy of Holies, one time a year on behalf of the nation to spill the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat or the atonement seat. In fact, it says this in Leviticus 16, He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people, Take its blood behind the curtain, behind the veil, and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover or mercy seat 
and on the front of it. So the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies. He passes through the veil, goes into the Holy of Holies, and there as he enters, he spreads the blood on the mercy seat. What was the purpose of the Day of Atonement? Well, in Leviticus 16, it says, because on this day, the Day of Atonement, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. And so on that day, the nation of Israel had one high priest enter the Holy of Holies. There he sprinkled the blood of the goat that had been slain. And there it covered the sins of the people. And they had to do it year after year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement to be made once a year for all the sins of Israel. Because you had an imperfect priest offering an imperfect sacrifice for an imperfect people. And so it had to be repeated year after year after year after year. Always looking ahead for the perfect atonement for the perfect sacrifice. That's Leviticus chapter 16. In Leviticus 16, as Moses is writing and lays out the day of atonement, the author of Hebrews takes this particular service, this particular day when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. And he uses that to refer to our Savior's ministry as our high priest. And so when we go to Hebrews chapter 4, What we see there is the author says we have a high priest. We have a great high priest. His name is Jesus, the Son of God. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, we'll take a look at what's there. In fact, if you look, we ran out of uh, outlines today. Sorry about that. First hour was just so packed. And uh, we'll have more printed for next week as school resumes. We're a week off. But if you spell out priest and acrostic, that's what we're going to do today. Jesus is our great high priest who, first of all, passed through the heavens. If you look at verse 14, it says, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. What is he talking about there? Well, it's a reference back to the Day of Atonement. You see, on the Day of Atonement, this is Solomon's temple that we read about in Leviticus chapter 16, or what would be built later, actually, at the tabernacle was back then. But the, the, the temple would be built. This is the altar where animals would be slain. You would enter into the holy place. The veil separated the holy place from the most holy place or holiest of holies. And what you find is only the high priest would pass through this, he'd pass through this door. They could gather there, but only the high priest could enter the holy of holies. He would pass through the veil. So the author of Hebrews picks up on that, and he says, Christ, the Son of God, is the one who passed through the heavens. So when did he pass through the heavens? When did he pass through the heavens? Well, it's pretty clear. In fact, here's an order from Dishon of the Solomonic Temple and what it might have looked like. Jesus passed through the heavens when he ascended. We read in the book of Acts, we read about him ascending to the Father, he ascends through the heavens to be in the presence of the Father. And so the author of Hebrews relates the fact that the high priest would enter through the holy place, and now we have Jesus passing through the heavens. Just as the high priest would pass through the veil, Christ passed to the holiest of places, and the holiest of places was in the presence of the Father. And so what you see here is Christ doing what an earthly priest could not do. The earthly priest could enter the Holy of Holies. Christ, our Savior, entered into the presence of the Heavenly Father. And as we look at that, we see our Savior, our great high priest. Now here's a question for you. When was the temple destroyed? 70 A.D. The temple is destroyed. And Jerusalem is sacked. The temple is destroyed. Have you ever been to a Jewish synagogue or watched people attend a Jewish synagogue? Our son and daughter-in-law lived in D.C. for four years, and he was doing his residency, and they lived across the street from the largest Jewish synagogue in Washington, D.C. 
And Bev and I happened to be visiting on Yom Kippur. And it was quite interesting to see literally hundreds of people. They offered six services that day. Hundreds of people, thousands of people actually coming to this huge synagogue. You know what's interesting? Nobody got out and nobody was pulling a cow, a horse trailer with bulls in it or sheep in it or goats in it or nobody had pigeons or doves. Nobody had animals with them. Why not? I mean, it's Yom Kippur, the highest holy day in the Jews, the Jewish people's calendar. Why did they not have animals with them on that day? I mean, it's just a few years ago. Why not? See, when the temple was destroyed, there was no place to offer sacrifices, no place to offer sacrifices. The priesthood goes away. And so it's quite interesting to see this scenario. Now, we look back as believers in Jesus, recognizing, of course, there's no need for more sacrifices because he was the perfect sacrifice. There's no need for a temple because our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. There's no need for a priesthood because we are all priests. And so some people look back on history and see that taking place and don't make that association, but it's very clear from the scriptures that those things are no longer needed because now the great high priest not only brought a sacrifice, he was the sacrifice. And so what you find is if you go visit our Jewish friends that no longer do they bring sacrifices because there's no place to offer those sacrifices and there's no need to do, or no need for us to do it because Christ met that criteria. As believers, we look back and see history. So where is Christ now? He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 4 doesn't tell us that, but you go to Hebrews chapter 1. It says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He sat down. Did the priest ever sit down in the temple? Were there any chairs in the temple? None. You see, the work of the priest never stopped in the Old Testament. If you were in the old, if you were in the temple, you sacrificed over and over and over and over and over again. Not just the Day of Atonement, but every day. And so, what you see, there was no place to rest. But when Christ offered Himself as our sacrifice, He sat down because of the work was finished. To sit means to rest. When he said to telestai, it's finished from the cross, he was saying the price has been paid, the work has been done. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, it says, when this priest, that's Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The, The right hand is the place of honor, the place of respect, the place of rest, and the place of authority. He sat at the right hand of God. Six-year-old boy came home from Sunday school one day and uh, told his parents, Mom, Dad, I'm like God. They said, really? Is that what you learned in Sunday school? He said, yeah. I said, how do you know? He said, we both write with our left hand. How do you know God writes with his left hand? Because Jesus sits on his right hand. That's how. (laughs) Not what we're talking about here, actually, but a bright young man. Here's the reality. He sits at the right hand of the Father because sitting is a place of rest, showing work is completed. The right hand is a place of honor, the place of authority, and he sits there. What does he do there? In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says he is our advocate. He is our intercessor. He intercedes for us. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So presently, the work of our Savior is to intercede for us as we pray to him. 
And so what a blessing to know that our Savior, who has passed through the heavens into the presence of the Father, sits at his right hand to intercede and advocate for us. So what, Gary? So what? (laughs) So what? In, In the midst of trying times, difficult times, times of dilemma, why would we turn to anyone else, anyplace else? Why would we? Why would we? You're going through a difficult time. If you're like me, maybe you want to shoulder that burden yourself instead of turning it over to him. There are times when we shoulder it and we worry and we fret. Believe me, when I got one finger pointed out there today, I've got three coming right back here. Because it's easy to carry that burlap bag of worry. It's easy to fret in the midst of difficult times. Believe me, I've experienced that over the last days, over the last weeks and months. Give it to the Lord, you take it back. You give it to the Lord, you take it back. I like what one author says. Some of us have PhDs from the University of Anxiety and postdoctorates from the University of Worry. Can you relate to that? It says we go to sleep worried that we won't wake up, and we wake up worried we can't go back to sleep. We worry that someone will discover that lettuce was fattening all the time. I'd hate to find that out. The mother of one teenager bemoaned, my daughter doesn't tell me anything, I'm a nervous wreck. The other one bemoaned, my daughter tells me everything, I'm a nervous wreck. Wouldn't you love to stop worrying? We could use a strong shelter from life's harsh elements. Worry, metanoia, that word in the Greek language means to divide the mind. Our mind becomes divided. Our heart is divided. Max Licato says this bag of worry is cumbersome and chunky and unattractive and scratchy. It's hard to get a handle on. It irritates us to carry. It's impossible to give away. No one wants your worries except Christ. Cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. And if you're like me, sometimes you turn that worry over, but you go back and you pick it up and you lay it down and you pick it up and you lay it down and you pick it up. Or some of you try to drown your worries. Some of you try to anesthetize your worries. Some of you seek pleasure to reduce your pain, sexual pleasure. Another vacation, a more daring adventure, a different car, a different house, different mate. And you find out it's always lacking. We have to quit trying and start trusting. Quit wrestling. Start resting. In fact, the first part of this chapter talks about that. Resting in Him. And as we wrestle with the events of life, the affairs of life, the difficulties of life, the struggles in life, He says, turn these things over. I know you're going to pick them up on occasion, but turn them over to me. Remember the story of Randy Reed? It's been a while since I used it. Randy Reed was a welder. He was welding the top of a water tower in South Chicago. And it was 110 feet up in the air. He needed to reach for some welding rods, and he couldn't quite get to the rods, so he unbuckled the safety harness, and when he leaned over, the scaffolding tipped, and when it tipped, he fell 110 feet. Fortunately, there was a huge pile of sand. He ended up in the sand. X-rays would prove at the hospital he had broken a couple of ribs in his leg. But as he lay in the sand, he was unconscious, and his workers came to him. They had called 911. When the paramedics arrived, they put him on a backboard, and he regained consciousness as they were carrying him to the ambulance. He had just fallen 110 feet. And for a fall like that, it's amazing he was alive, much less that his wounds were not that great. And as the guys are carrying him on the backboard to the ambulance, he's, what, three, 
feet off the ground. He comes awake and he begins to scream, don't drop me, don't drop me, don't drop me. (laughs) And the author who tells that story writes this. He said, how much like Randy Reed we are. We trust God with our eternity. But when it comes to the other matters of life, we find ourselves worrying that God's going to drop us. We find ourselves grabbing hold of those things and not trusting him. Guilty. What about you? And he says, we have a great high priest, a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who not only does that, but he identifies with you. He identifies with you. And not only does he say, cast your cares upon me, but he did more than that. Not only did he ascend, that's passing through the heavens, but he also passed through the heavens coming the other direction, didn't he? That's called the incarnation. We call it Christmas. He passed through the heavens coming down before he ever ascended back to the Father. And he passed through the heavens to become one of us. Don't forget the incarnation. Unlike the Greek and Roman gods of that era and that time who were distant deities, our God came in the form of flesh so that he could dwell among us. He became one of us. In Philippians 2, Paul writes that great truth and he says he emptied himself and he took on the form of a man, the form of a bondservant. He became one of us. It's a great story of a guy named Father Damien. Father Damien was a guy who went to Hawaii to an island that had been set apart, actually a village on the island, the, the, uh, the village was Kalawe. And he went there to serve at a leper colony. For 16 years, he labored in the midst of these people and lived with them. He learned to speak their language, he bandaged their wounds, he embraced their bodies. No one would touch them, but he would. He preached to their hearts, he started a church, he started a choir, he started a band. He built over 200 coffins by hand. Kauai became not a place to die, but a place to live now because of his love and care for them. What's interesting, though, is Damien was not very careful keeping his distance from the lepers. He would place his hand in their poi bowls and eat with them. He shared his pipe with them. He didn't always wash after he bandaged them. He, he, he got close to them. He lived with them, and he loved them. Sixteenth year on the island, he contracted leprosy. This was written about him. Now he wasn't just helping them, he was one of them. From this day forward, he wasn't just on their island, he was on our island. He too was now quarantined from the rest of the world and could not go back. You see, at first, he had chosen to live as they lived. Now he would die as they died. Now they were in it together. One day, God came to earth and he said, I will live among you and I will be one of you and he totally identified with who we are he identifies with us he also empathizes with us in your Bible it probably says in verse 15 he sympathizes but I needed an E on the outline so I put empathize (laughs) but actually the Greek word that's used there means to suffer with or to empathize with to suffer with or to empathize with. You have a Savior, a great high priest. Remember, the author is writing to Hebrews who are gone through difficult times, and he says, don't give up. You've got a Savior, a great high priest who empathizes with you. Whatever you're gone through, 
He empathizes with you. He sympathizes with you. He suffers with you. Jesus is not some emotionally detached deity like the other pagan gods. Christ is an empathizing Savior who comforts us in the midst of the battle. So if you have family problems, it says his own brothers and sisters rejected him. He understands. If you've been rejected by someone, one of his closest disciples, Peter, denied him. You've been betrayed by someone, he understands. One of his disciples, Judas, betrayed him. You're busy? Mark 6.31 says he was so busy, he was too busy to eat. I can't imagine that. But he was. If you go through those types of experiences, he understands. You're experiencing loneliness? Guess what? The loneliest cry in the history of our universe came from a cross as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Rejection, betrayal, loneliness busyness, family problems. He's been there and he understands. If we are going to be like our great high priest, we too will have that empathy. We see others in pain. We see others in sorrow. We see others hurting. We just don't look at them and go our way. We reach out and minister to them. James chapter 2 says, you don't say be warm, be filled, be gone. You minister to them in the name of Jesus. So you read about someone in the bulletin you need to pray for. You pray. You go. You minister. You care. You find out somebody's hurting. You go. You minister. You care. Just pray with them on the phone. Show up. Be there. When we wrap our arms around those who hurt, sorrow, or suffer, we do on behalf of Jesus what he would do if he were here. Check Swindoll. So we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens. We have a high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father. We have a high priest who identifies with us, who empathizes with us who has successfully resisted temptation. I mean, look, look at what it says. At the end of verse 15, one who was tempted in all things. Now, I think what that means, he was tempted in every area. When Satan tempted him, he was tempted for, for in, in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or pride of life. And so we see he was tempted in every area as we are tempted. He was tempted in all things, yet without what? He didn't sin. He didn't sin. Now, theologians have a big theological word when they discuss Christ not sinning. It's called the impeccability of Christ, impeccability. But the second longest word I know, I've told you the longest word I know is delicatessen. (laughs) The impeccability of Christ, theologians wrestle with that, and the question they ask is, was Christ able not to sin or was he not able to sin? Let me ask you that again. Was Christ able not to sin or was he not able to sin? It's a theological question that theologians debate. I think the point of Hebrews, I mean, you've got to answer that question. You can give, you can give time to it. Orthodox guys believe on either side of it. Was he able not to sin, not able to sin? But the point of the author of Hebrews is very clear. He successfully resisted temptation. That's the point. And he's saying, I want you to know you have a Savior who did not sin. You have a Savior who, when he was tempted, he didn't sin. So you can turn to that Savior in times of temptation. But when the battle comes, when temptation comes, you turn to the one who successfully resisted. The focus of the author is the fact that he was tempted and was successful in battling that temptation. So what's your favorite temptation? What's the one you struggle the most with? You latching on to bitterness, anger? Maybe it's uh, 
temptation to covet. Maybe it's temptation to walk in unforgiveness, a temptation to seek revenge. Maybe it's jealousy, sensuality, carousing, lying. What is it? I don't know. I know this, though. Satan looks for a chink in our armor. And he brings that spear out and he jabs us over and over. He looks into my life and he looks into your life. And believe me, the last few months I've been more introspective than I have in my whole life. And I've turned things over, but all of a sudden I feel, ouch, he's back. And I wish I could say I was successful every time, but I'm not. Ouch, he's back. And he comes to seek, to be the one who tempts us so we might fall back into sin. But we have a great high priest a great high priest who successfully resisted that. So why would we not turn to him? I like what uh, one lady said. She said, opportunity may knock once, but temptation bangs on the door forever. Another guy prayed, dear Lord, lead me not into temptation. I can find that place myself. <laughs> it was Martin Luther who said, you, can keep, you, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. Now, some of us don't worry about that, obviously. But you know what he's saying? He's saying you can keep that sin from dwelling over and over and over and over. He's also the guy who said, and I've used it a thousand times, if your head's made out of butter, don't sit next to the fire. Some of you have butter heads. I mean, your head's just dripping right now. You go back to the same fire over and over and over. One finger there, three back. Me too. And so what do you do? Well, you realize you have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who intercedes for you, who identifies with you, who empathizes with you, who has successfully resisted temptation and tenderly cares for you. See, if you look at the end of this passage, it says, he offers to you in this time of need two things, mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. So he's not a savior who you come to him. He says, bam, bam, you should know better than that. Or how dare you come to me with that? How dare you fall into that again? How dare you respond that way? But he says, if you come to me in that time of need, I'm not a savior who will cast you out. I'm a savior who will extend to you and to you and you grace and mercy. At that time. Chapter 5, 1 through 10 shows the superiority of Christ. You see, the earthly priest was sent by man. Our heavenly priest was sent by God. The earthly priest was a man. The heavenly priest was a son of God. The earthly priest was just that, a priest. Our heavenly priest is not only a priest, but he's also a king, according to the order of Melchizedek, the strange priest and king in the Old Testament that we read about. And so he is far superior to any earthly priest. And the great thing about this is that the earthly priest was a sinner who had to offer a sacrifice on his behalf. Our heavenly priest was sinless. He offered himself as a sacrifice, as the sacrifice on our behalf. And so here's what we learn. When we are tempted and tested, we draw near to our great high priest who cares for us. That's the teaching. When we're tempted... When we're tested, we have a great high priest that we can draw near to during that time of testing. 
Worship team, why don't you guys come up? On the day of atonement, I'm sorry, on the day of crucifixion, when Christ was being crucified, do you remember what happened? That well, a lot of things happened. You remember many of those things. But one of the things that happened was the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom, showing that man did not tear it from the bottom up, but God tore it from the top down, meaning access to the Father was available all the time now through Christ the Son. And so when we're tempted and tested, we too now go through the veil, draw near to him because he cares for us. If you're a product of the 50s, 60s, maybe even 70s, one of the most most famous pictures at that time was this picture. Remember that? Uh, It's an interesting picture. John Fitzgerald Kennedy was our president at that time. That thing, by the way, on the front is a telephone with a dial on it. Most of you younger wouldn't realize what that is. Uh, But look who's at the bottom. Who was that? You remember? John John Kennedy. You know why that kid is there? It's the son of the president. He's in the Oval Office while the president, with a little smile on his face, he pushes open the front door, and actually that desk is on display in Boston, the Kennedy Museum, Kennedy Library, and some photographer at that time was in the right place at the right time and took this picture that's so famous. Why was he there? He was the son who came into the presence of the father. So secret, uh, the, the, the secret police or secret police, where are they? The, yeah, those guys, they weren't going to stop him. They weren't going to stop him. He was the son of the president. He had open access into the Oval Office. He, he could play under the desk. He had access into his father's presence, into the presence of the commander-in-chief. What's even greater that we've learned today is our Savior was ushered into the presence, not of the commander-in-chief of the United States, but the commander-in-chief of the universe. And he went there and he inaugurated the way, Hebrews 10, 25 and following, so that we are 10, 19 and following, so that we too can enter into his presence any time when we are tested and we are tried, we can enter into his presence and draw near just as a son could to the Father. Now we, through that son, have access to the Father at all times and we should say glory, hallelujah. Because in the midst of those struggles, in the midst of life, The author of Hebrews says, you can go to your great high priest who loves you, cares for you, inaugurated the way for you, empathizes with you and identifies with you, and intercedes for you at the right hand of the Father. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for becoming the one who was sinless, who became sin on our behalf. Thank you for giving your life and inaugurating this way for us. If you're here today and you're not sure if Jesus Christ is your Savior, that's where this journey begins. It begins by trusting in Him and Him alone for the forgiveness. He's the one who's paid this price. He's the one who's done all these things. Would you make sure of that this morning right where you sit? You can pray along with me right now, right where you sit. Lord Jesus, I desire to know you as Savior. I ask you this day for the forgiveness of my sin. Thank you for that death on my behalf. accept you as my Savior and ask you for forgiveness. Maybe you know the Savior, but you're continuing picking up that sack like I have been. You need to lay it aside. Would you do that today? Would you lay aside that sack of worry or whatever it is you turn to over and over and over again? And trust Him. 
As we stand and sing, would you do business with the Savior? I'll be up here to pray. Probably got a couple of elders here this hour. A couple of men join me up here. Maybe your Bev will join me up here. Ladies, you can come pray with her if you want. As we talk about giving our lives over to the one who gave his life for us. Let 